Welcome to the third one sucks where we rank every movie in a franchise from first to worst. I'm Dan Ellis. I'm Mark Bell. And hi guys, we're back. We promised we would be. Uh, what are we going to talk about today, Mark? Man, it is the most wonderful time of the year because we are talking about The Muppets Christmas Carol. The Muppets Christmas Carol is an American musical comedy film starring Jim Henson's Muppets, adapted from Charles Dickens' novella with a screenplay by Jerry Jewell. Directed by Brian Henson, produced by Walt Disney Pictures and the Jim Henson Company, The Muppet Christmas Carol premiered on December 11, 1992, and stars Kermit the Frog, Michael Caine, Rizzo the Rat, and the Great Gonzo, among others. Dan, what's our fan review of this week? Mark, our fan review this week comes from Brian M. off of Rotten Tomatoes, who said, One star. Don't like Michael Caine playing Scrooge with the supporting cast being Muppets. Go all Muppet or not at all. <laughs> This is a weird take for a number of reasons. This is a bad take. It's a very bad take, and it's weird that it dropped him all the way down to one star, since he seems <laughs> to be a Muppet fan. But yeah. here's the real reason I put this on here. I wanted to ask you, just very briefly, what Muppet could even be Scrooge? Is it maybe Deadly? Is Deadly it's your deadly. best bet? It's Deadly. <laughs> the only thing with Deadly is that Snout doesn't quite have the facial range of emotion. Okay. But I bet I think he's your best shot because you know, like all of your other old guys are either Statler and Waldorf who are just cranks or they're mm-hmm. like cheerful old dudes like Pops. Sure. So I, I, Pops, I, I think Deadly is the Pops. right conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Shall we get into it? Let's get into it. And it merits mentioning as we get into this. We talked about it in Treasure Island, so I don't feel like we need to retread too much of it. But it merits mentioning that this is the film that happened after Jim and Richard both passed, which is, you know, mentioned right at the top. The film is dedicated to them. Brian Henson is at the helm. But this is a real transitional time for the Muppets. It's Steve Whitmere's first real big swing as Kermit. There's a lot of ways that this movie could have gone wrong. Absolutely. So it's kind of wild that what we got is perfect, or at least very close to perfect. This is my Muppet movie. This is my Muppet movie. This is the one that we watched and that I had the fondest memories of growing up. And I think Mm -hmm. that's probably true for a lot of people in my generation. Absolutely. This is the movie that kept the Muppets alive after Jim. Without your, our generation latching on to this movie, I don't think the Muppets make it out of uh, a post-Jim Henson world. Yeah, that's fair. So this is something that has just occurred to me. I just put this together this time through watching this. But Statler and Waldorf are Jim and Richard characters. Yes. And man, doing a movie where those two characters who I immediately picked up on, like these characters sound different. Yep. <laughs> they got the spirit of the thing, but obviously the vocal uh, tone. The spirit? The, the spirit? <laughs> And that's a lot of what it is, we can say with Kermit, too. A lot of what it is isn't doing a perfect vocal imitation of the previous puppeteer, but it's finding the soul of that puppet. And if you find the soul of the puppet, people will believe the voice that's coming as long as it's in the ballpark. Let's talk about this opening shot. We get a long establishing shot at the beginning of this movie, and it's gorgeous. This is obviously a set. Sure. (laughs) But like... If you're not looking for the seams, like the spirit of the thing, it feels mm-hmm. very naturalistic. It's cinematically the first time the Muppets have existed outside of a modern timeline. So this opening shot has to anchor us kind of immediately in Dickensian London, and it really nails it. <laughs> you're right. It feels alive. The set feels alive. Also, 
I wanted to point out Sprocket is in that long establishing opening shot. Yeah, I noticed that 100%, and my first thought was, I bet Martin's happy about that. <laughs> I am. I love that dog. Sprocket's great. <laughs> and he and Rolf are pals. Sprocket yeah. gets as much screen time as Rolf in this movie. It's a little sad. That is that is true and sad. <laughs> this is a thing we'll get into. Steve inherited a lot of Jim's characters that exist in the higher register, his Ernie's <laughs> and his Kermit's and such. But he didn't have that kind of more gravelly baritone that Jim could get down to. So <laughs> characters like Rolf, like Guy Smiley, stayed dormant for a lot longer. Yeah, they got picked up by Bill Beretta, correct? Yeah, that's right. Bill Beretta made it his personal mission to find Rolf's voice and bring him back, which is real touching. Hell yes. Now we meet Rizzo and Gonzo, who, mm-hmm. we touched on this again in Treasure Island, step forward as sort of the emotional center of the Muppets for the entire decade of the 90s. Pretty much, yeah. And what an interesting way for them to do it. It's an odd pairing to begin with. On paper, it maybe seems a little strange to put these two characters side by side. But as we've mentioned before, it's Steve Whitmere and Dave Goles, who at this point are two of the few remaining original Muppeteers. So they're two who have that rhythm and patter together. So in a lot of ways, it's a pretty natural choice. And the charm of these two characters is why I st- I like Rizzo on his own. I do, but I miss Rizzo because of what he was in the 90s with Gonzo. Yeah, Rizzo plays off of Gonzo very well. I firmly believe because of the trajectory of the 90s that for a while uh, that, that Gonzo and Camilla were separated and <laughs> he, he was just hooking up with Rizzo the whole time because there's so much love between these characters. That could very well be the case. Because, as mentioned before, Camilla drops off as well for a stretch. Part of what I liked mm-hmm. about the 2011 Muppets was a resurgent Camilla. For sure. So, these two are here, Gonzo as the narrator, in the character of Charles Dickens, but admittedly Gonzo. He's Gonzo. Mm-hmm. And Rizzo as just sort of his sidekick? There's no legitimate reason for Rizzo to be here. I'm not sure who made the inspired decision to put Rizzo beside Gonzo to kind of liven up the narration, but it's perfect. You mean, you have to think about what Frank Oz must have been going through at this time? Yeah, boy. So, like, you look at, like, because obviously he would have been the first choice for centering things around moving forward. Yes. But most of his characters work off of Jim's characters. That's exactly right, yeah. They kind of, like, they were a duo in a lot of ways there, and so... There really weren't a whole lot of other choices, but they actually like, I think it's a ju- probably just a Jerry Jewell decision. Like he was writing, he was oh, like, I bet yeah, these I two bet characters right. will work well together and, and they do. And maybe on paper they wouldn't, but like, man, you, <laughs> God, they work so well. Like you, you would never know that this was like their first like team up thing because it's so natural just right out the gate. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. And Gonzo is worth noting, while he is his typical weird self, Gonzo is incredibly serious about his role as the narrator, which is Mm -hmm. not to say that he's lost his silliness, but he takes this whole thing very seriously in a way that I don't know that I understand, but I really enjoy. Yeah, like, I think Gonzo really just appreciates Dickens. He's just like a Dickens fanboy, and so he's like, (laughs) no, you have to, you gotta respect the lore. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like that interpretation. <laughs> also, for some reason, I have a grappling hook, and because <laughs> I'm still Gonzo. Yeah, he's still Gonzo at heart. All right. That is um, enough staging, I guess. We open with our long establishing yep. shot. We meet Gonzo and Rizzo. I love all of this. I'm letting myself talk too much about it because the action mm-hmm. really starts when Michael Caine's boot hits the stage and we get the Scrooge song. Oh, Mark, these songs. The, <laughs> so much of this movie lives in my brain. Like innocuous shots of like Rizzo looking up from a, a barrel. Like just mm-hmm. that just lives in my brain for all eternity. <laughs> The shot where like Hermit's looking off into the night sky later on, these yep. things just live in my brain. And the musical numbers go with it. And like I feel like they don't hit me with quite as much charm as maybe some of the other songs do, just because I have watched them dozens of times sure. at this point. <laughs> this is Paul Williams returning to the Muppets mm-hmm. and really just giving the Muppets one last beautiful gift. He's you know, he does some more writing for them later and he, he writes some nice stuff for them. But in a lot of ways, this is the perfect kind of conclusion for Paul Williams' arcing work with Jim Henson. So this song is sung by a bunch of effectively background Muppets. It's a chorus song, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful, I mean, it's a good song. It's a, The lyrics of it are intense. <laughs> but what's fun <laughs> is to watch this chorus of like C and D and E tiered Muppets passing this song along the street amongst themselves. It's really, it. I'm going to say this a lot, it's a well-structured shot. And it lets us see a lot of part-timer Muppets. It establishes some characters like uh, the Little Mice family who are going to kind of quietly recur in the background for a while. And it gives mm-hmm. us our first look at Michael Caine as Scrooge. Who is not just here to make a paycheck. No. <laughs> Michael Caine, as have many people who have worked with the Muppets, has talked openly about how charming and wonderful it is to work with those Muppets. <laughs> and you're right, Michael Caine, as much as he is a very talented actor who does frequently take movies just for the paychecks, and he's very open about that, he came to play in this movie, and not not just to have fun. He's taking this role of Scrooge very seriously. Mm-hmm. And his body language i think I, I wrote this down in my handwritten notes i think it's very interesting that they chose to establish scrooge first through body language so he doesn't speak for the first three minutes we meet him it's just this song while we watch him stomping around and yeah you just see his stiff body and his like there's a few times where it drifts as high as his shoulders and you see his braced shoulders and it's it's a really good build to this really well-known character. It's hard to do a take on Scrooge at this point. There have been lots of takes on Scrooge, but I think they they give it something. Michael Caine gives it something a little different. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's very good. I have trouble separating this version of the story from being the version of the story because I grew up on it so much. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, like, everybody else, the, like, Bill Murrays of the world, etc., all feel like they are... They're just a bit off. They're, like, they're not... What my this is my Scrooge. Yes. Michael Caine is my Scrooge. <laughs> well, when we've mentioned before, I can't remember if it's on podcast or not, that at least as recently as a handful of years ago, this was still the most faithful adaptation of the work, which yeah, is bonkers to think about. But that's because Gonzo literally reads the book for big chunks of his dialogue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So giving a narrator 
lets it, despite being Muppety, lets it stay very faithful to the page in a really uh, weird way. (laughs) Yeah. Do you remember that part in that Dickens novella where the small blue whatever in Dickensian attire grapple hooked onto the back of a man being drugged (laughs) through the air by a ghost? Yeah, definitely. Lifted from the page. Just right. Yeah. One to one. (laughs) All right. The song ends with Scrooge arriving in the offices of Marley and Scrooge or Scrooge and Marley. And we see for the first time post Jim, at least on the big screen, we see Kermit and it's a very understated Kermit out of the gate. And I don't mean that critically. Bob Mm -hmm. is Bob Cratchit is a meek and reserved character. And that's what Kermit's playing, but it's so good. Like, and maybe it's just because like you, I grew up on this movie, but when the camera pans over and there's Kermit sitting at his desk in his little winter coat, it, it just, it just makes your heart melt. I will say that there's more Kermit in this movie than I remember. Yeah. Right. You think of it. And, and I do too, as a Gonzo and Rizzo film. And it is, <laughs> but Kermit's doing a lot of work, which means Steve Whitmere, who despite his, you know, eventual flaws and whatnot, Steve Whitmere's mm-hmm. carrying this movie on his back. He's Rizzo and he's Kermit. Yeah, he's also everyone, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> count count throughout this entire movie, listener. Take a shot if you're of legal drinking age and your specific uh, county or ordinance. Uh, every time <laughs> that you hear Steve Whitmere just doing the Rizzo voice, but just a little off. It happens a lot. Dave Goebbels is also, unsurprisingly, doing a lot of lifting in this movie. Okay. He and uh, Jerry Nelson and Steve Whitmere are all over the place. This movie is beginning the point where Frank Oz starts to pull back from the Muppets for a number of extremely valid reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jerry Nelson, Steve and Dave are still like they're the big three at this point. They're going strong. And if you look into most of the the cast, it's either like an extra puppeteer or it's one of those three dudes. <laughs> It just it just sticks out most to me when Steve does it, I guess, because it's just so on the nose, the same voice. And, and, and then there's this Kermit, which sounds, you know, pretty Kermit-y. Like, it's... <laughs> I, I feel like you can tell there's someone different under there, mm-hmm. but, like, it's close enough to where if you showed a child, like, hey, this is Kermit, this is a Kermit in A Muppet's Christmas Carol, and this is Kermit in the Muppet movie... They would tell you, yeah, that sounds like Kermit. Both these people sound like Kermit. So we also have, and we haven't really touched on yet, the rest of the rats here as the bookkeepers. Yeah. I always love when the rats show up, but I particularly love them in this movie. This is my favorite version, I think, of the rats. I like having them around. Um, I I think I like the mice a little bit better just because we get the line, no cheeses for our nieces. (laughs) But like the rats, um, they're good this time around. I couldn't help, like, usually I'm watching the Muppets and, like, I can turn my brain off and know they're not puppets. Right. But you can see, like, the like whenever they're writing, uh, like, furiously into the books in Scrooge's <laughs> shop, whatever. What does he do? What does Scrooge <laughs> do? Is he, like, a just, like, a landlord? What he does he do? He is a financier, I believe. Okay. Which is code for man who has money and gives yes. it to other people and only allows them to keep a very little bit of it so he can make more money. Correct. He is an investment banker, perhaps. Sure. It's a vulture. So anyway. Um... Accurate. So we get Kermit asking for the remainder of Christmas Eve off. He is turned down. Yes. 
we get oh, yes. what I was trying to say about the rats. You can see yeah, the fucking yeah, yeah. wire on their arms whenever they're doodling with the, the things. <laughs> and it took me out of it for a second. I was like, oh, now I know they're puppets. That as is if true. I didn't, as if they aren't, they don't look like puppets, Mark. I said that to myself <laughs> as if everybody doesn't look like a puppet. The, yeah, the smaller puppets, I think, do sometimes suffer from that, looking a little more puppety. In addition to meeting Kermit as Bob, then we meet the rats, who are a mm-hmm. lot of fun. Then we get Fred, who doesn't play a big role in this movie. No. Uh, he plays a slightly larger role in the book. I don't know where this actor came from. He seems straight out of, like, London Central stage casting. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a very, very... British trained stage actor sort of actor, but he is believably Scrooge's relation. Like physically they cast him well. He's here to invite Scrooge to dinner. And we get the impression that this is a semi-regular occurrence that Fred periodically tries to drag Scrooge to family events. And Scrooge always says no. And that's the relationship they have. That kicks off a sequence. We're going to get Fred, we get Bunsen and Beaker, and then we get Bean Bunny. Bunsen and Beaker, I don't even know how to talk about them in this movie, but I adore these two. They're just here as like bell ringers to collect for charity. Mm -hmm. It's an unusual spot to put them in. Like you got to put them in there somewhere, right? But their relationship in this film, the tenor between these two characters is very fun. And it is worth noting that at this point in time, these two characters are now Dave Goals and Steve Whitmere. And they've always had good chemistry, but you can feel it here. Like, these two characters relate to each other very well. So these are Dave Goals and Steve Whitmere playing Bunsen and Baker. Yes. Yeah, I think Dave has been Bunsen Honeydew since the very beginning, or nearly the very beginning. Steve took over from Richard. Okay, that makes sense. Bunsen and Beaker are here, as aforementioned, to try to collect for the poorhouses, effectively. And Scrooge not only has no time for it, but is aggressively antagonistic towards it. And I do not, I do not, and I cannot want to drag this beautiful Muppet Christmas Carol movie and our podcast discussion about it anywhere near the bad orange president. Mm-hmm. But I will say watching someone with laughing and mocking disdain for the poor hits a little harder right now. This is such a hard thing to navigate because we don't want to bum y'all out. The world is already bumming everyone out. It sure is. But like the whole message of this movie is maybe don't be a greedy old fuck. Yeah. Uh, so like. It is at its heart a very, very anti-capitalist movie. As the story yes. is a very anti-capitalist story. Yeah, it, woof. I had such a range of emotions watching this, <laughs> knowing as a child, have like internalizing these, like just these normal everyday truths about the world and mm-hmm. like being a compassionate person. And I, we, I was raised religious and that, that we have a duty to the poor and to the downtrodden. Mm-hmm. And then growing up and seeing <laughs> where we are is holy fuck, buddy. Yeah. Um, Here in the year 2020, it's a giant bummer to talk about how far we haven't come from, you know, 1992, let alone Dickensian London. Anyway, Scrooge shoots down Bunsen and Beaker and the poor. Mm -hmm. Of course. We get a very... The dirty, dirty dirty poors. We get a very (laughs) brief minute of Bean Bunny singing Good King Wetzislaus. It's a wreath thrown at him. (laughs) Bean Bunny exists for a long time as a character who is on screen only to be physically abused. 
Yeah. <laughs> you can kind of say the same as Kermit, depending on the episode of the Muppet Show. Very I true. <laughs> <laughs> but I do enjoy Bean Bunny's reedy little sincere voice singing Good King Wenceslas. Yeah, that was very good. <laughs> this is the first place I know. There's a couple of songs that were on the soundtrack that didn't make the film. One of them we'll talk about extensively because it did make the home release cuts or several home release cuts of the film. It still okay. doesn't show up like on all of the streaming services. They still default default to the theatric cut. We were um, Yeah, we were talking about this before we got started, and I did not see this song that you're going to bring up. <laughs> well, no uh, one saw was... this song. This song okay. is Room in Your Heart, which is a song that was written for the movie. It was part of Paul Williams' initial drafts, but it never got shot. It got cut before they ever got to filming, effectively for time. Okay. But they liked the song so much they released it on the soundtrack later. This song and a song called Chairman of the Board never were filmed, but the actors went into a voice studio and sang the songs. And this is a duet between Bunsen and Beaker called Room in Your Heart. What? Listen, those two characters singing together, like there's probably a reason that one gets cut, but I love it so much. It's got this like hefty thumping tuba behind it, and it's basically just Bunsen singing about how important it is to care for the poor. Oh my God, I want that. (laughs) I need that in my life, Mark. But it also has some echoes of When Love is Gone, a song we'll talk about later that also got cut. So there, you know, there's tracking there. I see. At the end of all of this, as the shop is closing down for the day, Bob Cratchit approaches Scrooge to ask for Christmas Day off. Mm-hmm. I really love, really love, and it's such a minor thing, how Kermit is the harried leader of this little staff. Mm-hmm. It's just a very Kermity note, right? Even though it's the character of Bob Cratchit, who mm-hmm. in the book works alone for Scrooge. It's such a very Kermity note to have him as the sort of emotional protector of whatever family he finds. Like wherever Kermit goes, he finds a family and he takes care of them. He like, yeah, I'm not sure if he's like middle management or like, <laughs> like the union rep- representative, but right. like he seems to play both roles. So it's, you know, it's it's a little gray there, but like he, yeah, he seems to be just like one step above the rats. <laughs> and of course, they get the day off because no one else is going to be open. Kermit makes the deft argument that you know you'll lose money doing business anyway because no one else will be open to do business with. Mm-hmm. And then he and the rats close the shop, and it kicks off the song "One More Sleep Till Christmas." Yes which is the first guaranteed cry for me in the movie. Depending on oh. what heart space I'm in, there's a very good chance that I have already started crying, but this is the first, pl- <laughs> like, I cannot make it through this song. And it's a saccharine song, I admit it. Like, it's very <laughs> intentionally playing on sort of prepackaged emotions that come with Christmas. But it's all gone at it. Like, it, <laughs> even though it is, like, that song knows what it's doing, but it does it so very well. I don't know if it's specifically the song or just my experience with the, the movie, but, like, <laughs> It sure makes you feel like a kid again. It does. It really does. It captures that feeling of the sun preparing to rise on Christmas. Yeah, like it is, it captures a very sim. 
Mark, I'm going to unlock a core memory for you. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it has a very similar note to that, that uh, you got to get up. It's Christmas morning. That we both <laughs> yep. were raised hearing. Um, <laughs> You're right. Much like you got to get up. I also cannot hear this song without being emotionally transported back to the very best parts of my childhood. And listen, I had a good childhood. My parents are super cool. Uh, I do not agree with them on everything, but I had what many people would consider an idyllic childhood. But this song sits me squarely in those sort of the moments that were most full of childlike hope, I think, is what it is more than anything. Yeah, there's like a there's this unbridled optimism. Yes. And one more sleep till Christmas, even though like the like this movie is look how broken the proletariat is. And this money grubbing (laughs) man is ruining life for everyone in his neighborhood. They're still just like, we're going to get we're going to make it. We we can do this, y'all. And the interesting thing about the song isn't like, hooray, tomorrow is presence. Like the song is very much about what is colloquially called like the spirit of the we season or whatever. Yeah. Right. You know, I don't, I don't know how to like, cause even that notion is aggressively commercialized now. I don't know how to engage right. with that in a way that can sound sincere, but this song mm-hmm. does. This song is very sincere about like the promise of light and hope and survival and the idea that the harvest will be there when we get there. It's so good. Very good song. Y'all. It's have, a very are, good song. Are you watching along these movies? Have you seen this this holiday season? Tell us if we, if our experiences with these songs are purely nostalgic or if they are really just as heartwarming as we think they are. On the back end of this song, Bob Cratchit's going home, and that's nice. Scrooge is also going home, and that is far less nice because Bob is going home to warmth and love and safety. He's going home to the place where he belongs. And by contrast, Scrooge is going home to coldness and emptiness and literal darkness and it's such a perfect sort of contrast to pivot right from the joy of bob cratchit on the night of christmas eve to the dourness of scrooge it it is very much drawing a contrast between these two characters and this is of course where scrooge starts to see spirits he sees the face of jacob marley in the door knocker yeah there's a moment where and I don't know that we can bring up Gonzo and Rizzo too much because mostly what they're doing is literally narrating. There's a moment where Gonzo sits up after having not broken his concentration and Rizzo says to him, hoity-toity, Mr. Godlike Smarty Pants. And yeah. the only reason I'm calling that out is you said this movie lives in your head, that lines live in your head, scenes live mm-hmm. in your head. Mm-hmm. My brother and I have said that line to each other anytime <laughs> either one of us is even remotely smug about anything for our for the last 18 years. Hell yes. <laughs> There's also a fun, is this the, the exchange where Rizzo climbs up to jump over the gate and then crawls back through to get his jelly beans? Uh, I believe so. I believe this is the part where he, yeah, he jumps off the gate. He's afraid of heights. Gonzo doesn't catch him. And then he forgets his jelly beans and just walks through the bars. So this also gives us God Save My Little Broken Body, which is a perfect line read. Credit to Steve Whitmire on that. It is a perfect line read. Yes. God Save My Little Broken Body. Yeah, that (laughs) that whenever we were trying to come up with ideas, listener, for our little opening little bit that was up there. 
I'm surprised. Well, hoity toity, Mr. Godlike Smarty Pants was not. <laughs> so we don't get a lot of sort of Muppet wackiness mm-hmm. in this film. I talk a lot about how much I love dumb Muppet jokes, but mm-hmm. the visual joke of Rizzo crawling back through the fence was really good. Yeah, it's just very understated, like, uh, <laughs> we get to live through Gonzo in that moment. It's very yeah, nice. that is part of, I think, what makes Rizzo an interesting contrast for Gonzo is in most relationships, Gonzo is the one disconnected from reality. Mm-hmm. And at least in this movie where Gonzo is forced by narration to mm-hmm. be very connected to what's going on, it's interesting to watch Gonzo exasperatingly reacting to someone who isn't paying enough attention. Yeah, for sure. All right. So we see the face of Jacob Marlin, the door knocker. Scrooge goes upstairs. The lights go out. This is where we meet Marley and Marley, which is one of the biggest sort of narrative conceits that this movie makes is splitting the Marleys into twin brothers. Yeah, for sure. And really, it clearly was only done to get Statler and Waldorf in here together. Uh-huh. <laughs> this song is weird and dark and sort of angry. I remember being not exactly scared of it, but sort of scared of it the first time I saw it, just because mm-hmm. of the like the darkening tone. We, I saw it in the movie theater and the sort of like sharp blue light, blue-gray light that the scene is lit in is very mm-hmm. well done. And if you read the lyrics to this song, this song is not playing around. It certainly is not. They talk about how they're very happy that they were able to watch, like, a broken orphan crying, like, homeless on Christmas. <laughs> yeah. With their little frostbitten teddy bears. Yes, little frostbitten teddy bears, yeah. And then it delivers... So the whole song is the Marley brothers prideful of their accomplishments and then shrinking in fear of the consequences of what they did. Mm-hmm. So it delivers these very brash lines, uh, like you said, about how much fun they had forcing children to die in the cold. And then it counterpunches with lines like, uh, as freedom comes with giving love, so prison comes with hate. Yeah. And that's a... and. Contextually, because they're talking about the punishment for their crimes, they're not talking about being thrown in literal prison, right? There's not not a suggestion here that like, oh, Scrooge is going to be drug off the prison. But they're talking about this sort of internal prison that you put yourself in. It's goofy and it's delivered through the faces of Statler and Waldorf. But again, it's a really intense song. Yeah, I like they lampshade this a couple times in the movie with um, Gonzo and Rizzo being like, "This is pretty spooky." Is our kids can kids watch this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just like in the book, in every other version, this sort of conflict ends with the Marleys telling Scrooge, "You're going to be visited by three ghosts tonight. <laughs> this is your chance to do something. Like this is the night." This is your breakpoint night. Yep. Do with it what you will. You only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. Because <laughs> opportunity comes once in a lifetime, yo. All right. So that's sort of almost the first half of the movie. First third of the movie is getting us <laughs> to this point. And the next big chunk of the movie is going to be obviously the three ghosts. And then we're going to have our finale. 
How would you feel about a shot for shot remake of eight mile? But it was Michael Caine. <laughs> you know, I'd watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't turn it off. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the ghost of Christmas present, or I'm sorry, yes. the ghost of Christmas past, who is our yes. first, even more correct. <laughs> our first of the three promised ghosts. And it's a tiny like porcelain doll puppet. It's weird, right? It's very, and I know they're trying to sort of do like youth, middle age and elderly with the three puppets, Mm -hmm. but it's really weird. The puppet itself has a very ethereal quality. It doesn't look great when it's put onto the rest of the film. This is one of the places I think where the kind of blue screen, green screen lets them down a little, Mm. but the puppet itself does have a really like glowing and flowy quality to it. It works for me just fine. I would say about 80% of the time. One part where it doesn't work for me is whenever she's like, take my hand. And it's this tiny little doll hand. Yes. Mm. Yep. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) It is also probably a good choice to make the three ghosts not any of the Muppets that we know or are familiar with. Like, they didn't cast them with named Muppets. I think that was a strong call. I was thinking about that throughout this entire movie. I was like, they really just made 100% new Muppets for all three of these ghosts. Yeah. And I was trying to, like, wrap my head around, like, who, like... If I had to, because in my head, I always have this weird thing where I forget weird, creepy Santa Claus man is the middle ghost. Yep. <laughs> um, even though, like, I feel like that's not a thing that you should ever forget once you've seen it. But like for, <laughs> somewhere in my head, it's always like, is that Sweetums or is it not Sweetums? And it's very, <laughs> and it's not, but like, you know, I think there was a version. I bet there was a version where they were like, what if that was Sweetums? But yeah. then it was just too weird in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and so they made a new Muppet. They did, You can see the Gorgs from Fraggle Rock in the design of the Ghost of Christmas present. If they were doing this today, they would use established Muppets for these. I think, I I think you're like right, yeah. A hundred percent. Like, they would use one of the babies. They would use one of the weird babies for the first ghost. <laughs> they would use, I mean... I would hope not Sweetums. I want to say Bobo. I think Bobo would be a great Bobo, I ghost. think, is a good one there, yep. Um, and then they probably would have used like deadly for the final, for the yeah, ghost of that future. That seems right. <laughs> so this baby's like weird. We can all yeah, agree that this, this baby's <laughs> weird. <laughs> so this baby's weird. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and weird baby. There's this odd sort of speaking through an echo chamber vocal intonation. Uh huh. That again mostly works for me. Yeah. But really, this ghost is just here to take us to Scrooge's past. And we get to see Scrooge in school, where we meet yep. Sam Eagle. Yep. <laughs> there is a beautiful gag where he says the American way and then has to be reminded to say the British way. The British way. <laughs> Mark, you know my favorite bit about the scene, and I know we're not there yet, but I want to make sure that I say it, is that whenever he's like, don't don't tip the cab driver. <laughs> No line has ever distilled Sam Eagle more for me in my 30 years of watching Muppet Media. It's so perfect. It's a perfect moment. (sighs) 
there's not a whole lot to talk about in this schoolyard. It's just reminding us that Scrooge had a tragic and lonely past. Yeah, turns out this old man was once a young man. Yes. <laughs> and we go quickly from there. This is where the song Chairman of the Board was cut. There's a Sam Eagle solo here where he sings about growing up and becoming important and making money. Oh, that I feel like that would have been good. But then we get to Fozziewig and Mom, which I feel is only here because the character in the book was named Fezziwig. That has to be the only reason we made this Fozzie, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and we meet Belle, who is Scrooge's one and only real love. Mm-hmm. Aside from money. Aside from money. And that is the point that is ultimately made. We see a little bit of their relationship, and then we get a scene where she leaves him because he loves money more than her. Mm-hmm. And in the film, it's kind of abrupt, and we don't get a lot of Bell. and I think that moment is a little underserved. It definitely is. In the long cut, which restores, as far as I know, only this song, there is a deeply heartfelt song by Belle called When Love is Gone that is just her singing to Scrooge about how he has abandoned love in favor of money. And it's, I don't generally love when these movies feel the need to stop for a, like a maudlin, heart-wrenching, whatever, but it's not that. It is an incredibly good solo that is really, that's what this character is here for. Belle is kind of nothing without that song. But with that song, she is a real emotional pivot on this movie, and it's a bummer that it got cut. I'm still not sure why they made that choice. Yeah, it's real weird in the theatrical cut, because like that's the version that I watched. That's what Disney Plus had up, and that's where mm-hmm. I've been watching about half of these, because my brother has a Disney Plus subscription. Yep. Um, And it just cuts after he's like, I did it all for you, and she's like, that was once true, or something. And then yep. like it cuts from there immediately to Gonzo and Rizzo crying. And I have to assume the song is between those two things. That is absolutely where it is, because he says, I did it all for you. And the song is 100% her deconstructing that idea. It is her divesting him of any idea that he did it for anything other than himself. Which, for some reason, Scrooge is just really into just because the word divesting was used. (laughs) So we go back on the back end of Bell Breaking His Heart. And we meet the ghost of Christmas present, who we've already touched on a little bit, but it's basically just like if you could take Jerry Nelson's voice and build a puppet to match it, it is the ghost of Christmas present. This is Jerry yeah. Nelson at his most like happy and bombastic. And you can really feel how much he's loving this entire performance. So this character, yeah, he's he's jolliness incarnate. He's not Santa Claus, but he's like ginger Santa Claus, but also kind of Bacchanalian. There's a bit of a, yeah, there's a bit of Bacchus about him, but there is also a note that, uh, you know, so many of his brothers have come before, and I think it's like, he turns gray because he's aging, but there is no doubt also that that makes him look very Kris Kringle-y. So I think there is a degree to which, while he is not the Santa Claus, he is sort of occupying that space. Yeah. He is just, in many ways, larger than life. Yeah, literally, he's very he's a very large boy. <laughs> and he sings a song, like his introduction is, you know, come in and know me better, man. And he, from there, shrinks down to a sort of closer to human size and then sings a song called It Feels Like Christmas that is the counterpoint to the Scrooge song that we opened with. Mm-hmm. Because it is 
Scrooge being forced to walk back through the streets and we see the mice, we see the dogs, we see a lot of the same characters. It's like that song in reverse because instead of the fear that accompanies Scrooge, the ghost of Christmas present is bringing with him this sense of joy and wonder and hope. This is uh, the first kind of like this is the most joyous portion of this movie with the exception of the finale, perhaps. Absolutely. And like, yeah, it's just very much like, okay, I like I scared the bejesus out of you with with the last ghost. So now like (laughs) things could be look how jolly things can be. There's a moment I pin here as being the pivot, the emotional pivot point of this entire movie. Okay. Because in this song, there's a moment where you watch Michael Caine, incredible performance on his part. He's visually Mm -hmm. tracking the ghost of Christmas present. He's watching him. He's reacting to him. (laughs) And Michael Caine's initial body language is cagey and distrustful. And he, he can't help but be sucked in by the cheer of the ghost of Christmas present. And there's a moment where the ghost of Christmas present turns and does this little like four step back and forth dance. And Michael Caine Scrooge does it with him. Scrooge gets caught in the moment and allows himself with a smile to match the dance of the ghost of Christmas present. The two of them are just sashaying back and forth for a minute. And it's when we see Scrooge first break. It's the moment, I swear it's the moment, where Scrooge cracks and everything starts pivoting here. Yes. Also, Bobby Benson and his baby band are in this song. (laughs) The weird-ass babies are back. (laughs) So the Ghost of Christmas Present leads Scrooge through this dance through the streets. They're joyful. They're happy. And by the end of it, Scrooge is legitimately grinning, right? He's had a good time. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. And they step out of the streets into his nephew Fred's house, and his nephew Fred is throwing a Christmas party. A bunch of his friends are there. They're playing charades, and Scrooge, still caught up in the moment of joy, is playing Mm -hmm. charades, or is playing 20 questions with them. Of course, he's Mm -hmm. invisible. They can't see him. But he's having fun. And you see in his face, and again, credit to Michael Caine, you see him connecting with his nephew, It's wild. His nephew doesn't know he's there. And for maybe the first time in his life, Scrooge is having a positive emotional reaction to his nephew, Fred. Yes. There's a minute where you can watch him like almost, almost in his eyes. You see him examining the idea of love. And then Fred, the whole setup of the 20 questions bit is, you know, a creature that nobody wants. It's cold and heartless and whatever. And it's Scrooge. And to watch Michael Caine's face melt in that moment is a masterclass in acting. <laughs> I can't get over because there's a moment of confusion there. So he's joyful. He's having fun. He's playing along. And then he's curious because he, no one's getting the answer. And Michael Caine goes from happy to like curious and having fun. And there's a moment where he does not understand the punchline in his face. Just it's not theatric. Like it doesn't go into this big sob or this grumpy frown. It just goes from confusion to a moment of regret and sadness. That is incredible. Just that his face across that scene is amazing. I can't get over that performance and, and his, his fade to, it's not misery. It's not anger. It's just 
sad. His fade to that sadness makes me unimaginably sad every time. I remember, you talk about awakening uh, emotional memories. I remember reacting to that scene in the movie theater when I saw this. I felt so bad for Scrooge in that moment, which is what this movie wants, right? We somehow, somehow, somehow need to drum up empathy for this evil character. And this scene does it for me. Yeah, like Michael Caine across the board in this movie is like chewing on every morsel, every scrap, you might say, that is thrown to him. And like, like he came to play. He did not like... At no point in this movie is he phoning it in. He is acting his <laughs> ass off he against is. a bunch of puppets. It's ridiculous. <laughs> no human being should care this much, Mark. No one. <laughs> but he did and he does and he sells it. Yeah. This is why I don't understand Brian's comment all the way back at the top saying, why did you put Michael Caine in this movie? I don't think this movie works without Michael Caine as much as. Steve Whitmere and Dave Goals are the heart of this film. As much as it's a beautiful and well-written tribute, a script, a soundtrack, all put together in tribute to George and Richard, I'm sure there are other actors that could have done it and would have would have worked just as well. But because it's Michael Caine and I can only see Michael Caine, I cannot imagine this movie without that man in it. 100% agree. I don't even have the words for it. You know, yes. <laughs> and we go from there to Bob Cratchit's house. Mm-hmm. And there's, again, most of this acting is being done on Michael Caine's face because we watch Bob Cratchit come home. We watch him singing with his son. We watched him welcome in by the, his twin daughters, Bettina and Belinda, who, by the way, Steve Whitmere and Dave Goals. Of course. Who are, if you listen to the director commentary on this, uh, Brian talks about how much Bettina and Belinda were just Steve and Dave making fun of Frank. Like they were just over-exaggerating yeah. these Miss Piggy characteristics and just like having a go with their pal. I think they did pretty well because I thought it was just like Frank Oz doing yeah. extra character voices. <laughs> yeah, they really nailed it. And it's just this moment of familial joy. It's literally everything that Scrooge does not have. And contrasted against, of course, the lack of money, which is everything Scrooge does have Mm -hmm. and we see him watching through this grimy window and again just grinning like he cannot help but love specifically tiny tim i don't know why i don't i don't know why he loves tiny tim but he does he's very spitten with this this child (laughs) the book gives us a little more space for it i think the movie doesn't have a whole lot of time to establish it and so we just let it rest on the fact that like hey it's robin Robin can get you to this emotional place quickly. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. The character of Robin can substitute for the character building that the book would have done. But I think in part it's because the Ghost of Christmas Present has carefully walked Scrooge through a place where he has been emotionally shook up a little. He has sort of had to confront a lot of emotions that he has very carefully locked away inside himself for literal decades at this point. And those boxes have been opened one at a time. And I think at this point, Scrooge is, to the extent that he can be, emotionally vulnerable. And so seeing Tiny Tim, who is sort of the physical opposite of Scrooge, he is dirt poor. He has no luck. He has no future, at least in the timeline that we're presently in. He has 
everything that Scrooge fought to get away from. Scrooge built walls of money to protect himself from this fate. And somehow Mm -hmm. Tiny Tim is happy and Scrooge is not. And I think that is what Scrooge connects to. Yeah, it's, man, like, this is hard to navigate. I think you're right there. I think that's what they're going for. I'm navigating this now as a adult who hobbles around on one leg and is a disabled person. Sure, sure. Trying to figure out how I feel. Like, I think it does it better than most stories and or movies do. Because, you know, at least it's a tiny frog and it's not a handsome white man in a wheelchair (laughs) who is going to overcome adversity and be an inspiration to us all. Um, Instead, they went the other route. And that is that, like, we're going to inspire people to be better by dying, Um, (laughs) which is, to its credit, more realistic, um, especially when it comes to not being able to afford health care. But... but yeah, it's just, it's something I wanted to touch on because it is something yeah. that I took note of this time. I was like, oh, look, it's me in this movie. Oh, there I get is, to die again. Great. <laughs> there is a fine line that this story itself walks mm-hmm. between the point that it's making and, as we've mentioned before, the idea of inspiration porn, right? Yeah. The character of Tiny Tim, as conceived initially, was supposed to just be a proxy for literally all of the poor of England who... Mm-hmm. In the time of the in the time of Dickens, the time in which he was writing, and frankly, still now, are uh, abused and forgotten. And mm-hmm. so, Tiny Tim is just sort of the I think because he is the stand-in for all of that, and not just like he's here because he's crippled. You know, he is just here to represent the downtrodden across multiple vectors. I think it allows that to work a little better. Maybe, kind of. I think a big problem, and this is this is media analysis cr- just in, uh, across the board creeping into mm-hmm. our Muppet discussion, but, like, that ends up, that's how we end up getting, to- that's how any marginalized community ends up getting tokenized, is that you Absolutely. have, you have one, one character that has to represent everything about this community, <laughs> and so- no, you're not wrong. Of course it's going to turn into a trope. And, like, they're going to feel very tokenized, and it's going to be problematic because they're the only one being represented that way within the contents of this uh, story. So, yeah, using, like, a singular any marginalized group as a stand-in for all of marginalized groups, uh, it it gets dicey. I mean... Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes the X-Men pull it off, and sometimes they don't. (laughs) Um, so sometimes Tiny Tim is okay and sometimes they're not. And I think like for the most part, they do a better job here than, uh, nine out of 10 people we're going to do. Sure. I I think that's fair. Yeah. There is also, and again, the whole point is the standing contrast to Scrooge granted, but there is a (laughs) lot of love in the Cratchit house that I really appreciate. Not just yeah. Tiny Tim and his dad, which is our initial view into it. It's great. Of course. But Bettina and Belinda together. This mm-hmm. is possibly the most sincere love that we see between Kermit and Piggy and almost mm-hmm. any Muppet vector. Yeah, I like I like Piggy in this and yeah. I like Bettina <laughs> and Belinda in this. It's all very it's just a little family that loves each other. And yeah. again, there's, you know, discussion to be had about how they are having to represent everything but this family Mm -hmm. is just a little family who loves each other who finds their purpose for living 
within their love for each other. And that is, it's a powerful expression. And it's, is it trite? Maybe, I guess it is like, there's a million Hallmark movies that try to do this same thing, right? That like, oh, it's okay. As long as we've got each other, we'll be just fine. And that's not true because you also need food and shelter. Like love (laughs) will not sustain you. Sure. But still within the framework of this story, the idea that this family within themselves has more to live for tomorrow for than Ebenezer Scrooge does is a well-structured point. Obviously, a lot of that goes to Dickens, but to the filmmakers of this movie, they do a great job of consistently pinging back and forth between the Cratchit and Scrooge perspectives to really Mm -hmm. drive that home. This is, I guess, this is where, like, I'm looking at our notes here, and this seems like it's your your cry time again. This song doesn't work for me, I'm going to be honest. (laughs) It, for me, and I've said probably mm-hmm. since junior high that this is the closest thing to a true expression of prayer. I think I've ever found. Yeah. It, it gets real, uh, without explicitly saying so it gets real Jesus here. It does, which is interesting because the Muppets and, you know, Paul Williams are not Jesus-y people. Jim grew up in a mm-hmm. kind of Unitarian background and there's certainly elements of like what, how that shaped him that come out in his performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does approach that spot. And for, for me, who is still a person of faith, maybe that's why the song connects to me in a different way. I don't know. But also a lot of it for me isn't just in the lyrics of the song, which I love, but in the expression of love amongst this family, uh, which I had to kind of fight myself back from tearing up a little bit as I tried to describe earlier, which is really dumb because I'm just talking about a bunch of frog and pig puppets who love each other. <laughs> But it is the interconnectedness of this family in this moment and the contrast against the contrast of light against darkness, which is real tropey. I know it's real tropey, like it's Zoroaster at its roots, but the contrast (laughs) of light and love and hope against darkness and despair echoes in this song, but more even specifically in the relationship of the family that is singing this song in a way that really emotionally moves me when I watch it. <laughs> yeah, I think it I think it doesn't land for me for a number of reasons. Uh definitely because it has all of the like earmarks of a Jesus thing. It's sure, one yep. of those things where like even if I don't actively participate in the culture, I I don't have a sense of smell, but if I did, I could smell it on them, you know? <laughs> sure. Like, yeah. Um so I think that's partly that. I think that part of it sense, is yeah. just getting just a little too close to that like and the Lord will get us through. And then you fucking died, <laughs> Tiny Tim. He didn't heal your he didn't heal your leg. You fucking died, bud. All right. We do have to move away from the Cratchit house as much as I could spend the next several hours talking about how much I love these frogs and pigs. Because mm-hmm. there is an end of this movie that we have to talk about. And we need to get to the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Yes. This is a weird, much like the baby, this is a weird puppet. It's effectively just the Grim Reaper, right? Yeah, it is kind of the Grim Reaper. When it initially shows up on screen, Mark, I just mm-hmm. go, oh, so that's a guy with, with like, sleeves for, like, <laughs> extra long hands and yep. has, like, a thing on his head. He's got a big hat. Yeah, he's just got a big hat. he got a big <laughs> face hat for the thing's face or lack of a face, where a face might be. But, like, after that initial moment of, oh, I know exactly what's going under on under the hood there, it faded away. Like after that, yes. after like you get the cut where like he's looking up at it and I'm like, that's what that is. That's a yep. man with a thing on his head. 
And then every shot afterwards, I'm like, oh, this thing's actually kind of unnerving and creepy. They frame it much better outside of that initial shot. Yes. And my daughter genuinely finds this puppet creepy. She tends to close her eyes through this part of the movie because this guy's a little unsettling. And Gonzo and Rizzo leave because this guy's a little unsettling. Yeah, I feel that. I felt that way as a child, too. I remember this thing unnerving me. Granted, I was grappling with a lot of propaganda. So, like, that was adding on top to it. (laughs) But, like, yeah, it's, 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 it's just, like, off kilter enough. Like, the proportions to where, like, it's unnerving. And he's going to drag us through some dark places. As much as this is a Muppet movie, it doesn't shy away from the darkness of this third ghost. We're going to go see old Joe, who is a money lender slash pawn shop operator. That's the big spider. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we see the servants who work in Scrooge's house selling off his possessions to this guy. And they're cracking jokes about the only warmth he had. These are also kind of creepy puppets in their own right. Yeah. That big spider is a little bit unsettling, and it's a nice work of puppetry. This brought to mind that, like, this is the second homeless character named Joe in Muppet canon. Oh, like, good I guess point. This is the first, because we do get, the, they call him Hobo Joe, Hobo in, Joe. The, yep. in 2011's Muppets. I don't know where we fall on Hobo being an offensive term as migrant workers, but, like, that that's the name that's used. He's technically also in Muppets Most Wanted. He shows up at the wedding, weirdly. He does. (laughs) But yeah, old Joe is just a creepy spider puppet. Yeah. And he's got this sort of slimy voice that's real good. Unlike the uh, round orange face puppet who just sounds like Rizzo. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) There is Mrs. I think Mrs. Delbin is the cinder woman who is selling the drapes or the bedsheets. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is just like this insectoid sort of winged insectoid puppet that is mm-hmm. also sort of unnerving. And we transition from there to back to Bob Cratchit's house. Mm-hmm. And there's a minute, there's this beat where Scrooge says, ah, thank you. I needed a break. Like I needed something happy. And as Scrooge processes Tiny Tim's death, again, we can just watch Michael Caine's face melt. and It's really good. Yeah, for sure. And there's a much more somber tone to the Cratchit household. We see the much subdued Bettina and Belinda. We see Bob Cratchit walking home alone from church service. It's replaying what we saw earlier, but sad instead of happy. <laughs> but it's, it, you know, it's it's a contrast and it's an intentional contrast, but I think it's done well. Again, there's a lot of good filmmaking in this movie. Yeah, the, there's a lot of deaf filmmaking and combining that with the score and the shot, like yep. the shot composition Michael Caine, like, gnawing to death every, like, line (laughs) and moment that they give him against all odds uh, really kind of elevates this movie. It does. And watching him here grapple with the knowledge that Tiny Tim has died is, it's real profound. Michael Caine is, as you say, he's making a meal of everything he's in. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the famous grave scene where he's taken to a grave. He wipes off the snow to see his own name. And then, you know, he wakes up in his own bedsheets or whatever. It's it's perfunctory at this point because it's how every version of this movie ends. Mm -hmm. But I think Michael Caine, again, plays it pretty well. Kind of scenery, too, and he's a little bit hammy, but in a good way. There is one like there's a brief moment of levity 
in the graveyard scene where he's about to like go wipe off the grave where he points to the wrong grave that he knows is the wrong grave and looks back at the Grim Reaper. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, you know which one, you dummy. And he's like, okay, sorry. Um, Every human ever trying not to look at their own death. Yes. I mean, that's what we're all trying to do. Is av- <laughs> yep. That's what we're doing this podcast from the for. Evitable- yep. That's, I mean, I started podcasting to avert my gaze from the inevitable mob of death. <laughs> I can't possibly die if I have a bunch of things to finish. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And now we get the finale and we know what's coming. This is how the Christmas Carol ends. This movie is meant to be, you know, inspirational and happy and what have you. (laughs) But we see Scrooge make his face turn. And what's significant about it's good. It's very good. It's a good version of this scene. He throws money to Bean Bunny. He takes a scarf from Beaker in an incredibly moving moment. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. Beaker has that much emotional heft, but he does. Like Beaker handing him the scarf is a real moment. Yeah, it's they make it a moment. I don't know why it works. I don't think it should. No, um, but it, it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> and all of that's very good. He goes to see Fred, which is nice. He takes this giant parade of food to the Cratchits. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about Piggy here in just a second. It's worth noting, I think, before we get into that last scene, that the point of Christmas Carol is not that Scrooge gave away all of his money. That's a good first step. That's a good step. But Mm -hmm. the point of Christmas Carol isn't that you can purchase your own redemption. The book makes a point, and Dickens is very open about making the point, that like what redeems Scrooge is that he spent the rest of his life giving his money back and serving the poor. Like that's he, you know, when he repented, he then matched his apology with action for the rest of his life. And I think that's a point that merits mentioning. Yes, the point like the the point of the story is creating equity yeah. and not <laughs> philanthropy. Yes. Well said. All right. So noting that, let's talk about Piggy greeting Michael Caine at the door because the electricity between those two performers is real great. (laughs) And Kermit's trying to like hold her back when she's just like, look, fucko. I love the the moment where she can't help herself and just pins Kermit to the door frame. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of nuance in this scene that just like, Everything happens so fast, and there's, yep. like, so many tiny little character moments that are happening between the three, like, people that are on screen <laughs> at this moment. Watching Michael Caine fighting to meet Miss Piggy at an energy level, like, mm-hmm. clearly those two are sparring within this scene, and it's real amazing. Because, again, that's just a puppet. That's a puppet. Yep. <laughs> and that's kind of it. There's a very nice bit. We get the, you know, God bless us, everyone, which is how the thing has to end. Mm-hmm. And a reprise of uh, the song Thankful Heart there, which is good. I don't mean to short circuit this finale. I think what we said about, you know, creating equity and not just buying your own redemption is important. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we all know this finale. Like, it's just a happy ending. And it's good. It's a great happy ending. I really like it. There's just not a whole lot to discuss here. Tale is old as time. Song is old as Ryan. He brought this family a turkey and saved a person with a disability from dying (laughs) that that's how that song goes now though now we have to rank this one sure do that is what we do on the show right (laughs) so man let's for a minute let's just talk about 
where this movie lives. Because I have, more than any other Muppet movie, the Muppet movie itself, incredibly important to me. The 2011 Muppet movie, as we talked about, is deeply tied to my sense of transition to fatherhood in ways that I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. But more than any other movie, and perhaps because I saw it when I was 10, this movie lives in my heart. I'm going to have so much trouble separating my emotion for this movie from any sort of critical analysis of this movie. I am deeply struggling with that. Very same thing, Mark. And I will say the point of these rankings aren't to sort of rank them as critically the best. They are sort of ranking how we like them. I love this movie. This movie is my childhood in a lot of ways. I think it's a lot of great performances across the board. It's a farewell to Jim and Richard in a way that as I get older, only becomes more meaningful to me. There's that little bit with the falling star that was always Jim's thing with Kermit that is very intentionally Brian Henson saying goodbye to his father in this film. Oh, my heart. Yeah, it's it's hard to approach this movie without crying, honestly. Uh, I think I've fought it off mostly. There might be a few places, listener, where you can hear my voice crack. I love this movie. I don't know what else to say about it. It has its flaws. We touched on a few things that it could have done better. Some things that really can't, like there's no way to address Tiny Tim differently because that's what the source material is. But within all of that, this movie just speaks to me in a way that, not just like Muppet movies, just in a way that most movies can't connect. I love movies. I watch a lot of movies. There are not too many of them that speak to me the way this one does. Yeah, so I guess I, I have to give rankings so that you can share your thoughts, because I need to shut up. I'm just going to say the same thing 900 times. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you my ranking so that you can talk about this movie for a little. <laughs> so here we go. As honest mm-hmm. as I possibly can. Bottom up, I think is how I, how do I usually do this. I don't know. We need to do. I feel like we need to do them bottom up. Otherwise, <laughs> at this point. There's going to be this movie, especially. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to be pulling that. You're going to be putting the cart before the horse there. Otherwise. (laughs) So it's treasure Island at the bottom. Most wanted at number seven. Muppets take Manhattan at number six, which still surprises me. Muppets take Manhattan or Muppets from space. Rather at number five, the great Muppet caper impossibly separated from the Muppet movie in a way I did not expect at number three. I'm sorry. At number four now. The Muppets 2011 is now number three. And despite my deep emotional connection to this movie, unless we re-rank these during actual Christmas, which is when you're listening, but not when we're filming, it's number two. And the Muppet movie is still my number one. The Muppet movie is still Jim and Frank and Richard. It is still Mm -hmm. the Muppets sort of as I first met them. Okay. Okay. But it's a hard choice. That's a hard choice. That's where I'm standing, though. Muppet Christmas yeah. Carol number two. Mark, I support your choices here. <laughs> I think you've done what you needed to do. I was thinking about this a lot whenever I sat down to watch this because we're watching this in at the end of September and that it's not it's not Christmas time yet, y'all. Yep. And so, like, I tried very hard and very intentionally to try and put myself into that headspace for this. Yes. Right. And like, I really tried. I don't think I ever got there. I don't think I got even close. Interesting. Because like, there's just some things that like, 
they just hit different during absolutely this sort of seasonal shifts. There's snow everywhere. I like I love the, <laughs> I love the video game Metal Gear Solid, but like playing that outside of Christmas, like winter time when it's cold out. There's a there's a disconnect for me for whatever reason, and so like it doesn't hit quite as hard. And it's like the same thing with Christmas movies where I'm sure. Um, I'm trying to put myself on that same sort of like for me. There's some amount of seasonal depression that hits, <laughs> and you kind of couple yeah. that with. Like these are the darkest days of the year and you're looking to try and find some hope, which is weird because I feel like this, like the last three years have been the darkest days of, they have been the December of the century. (laughs) Um, And, (laughs) but I didn't quite get there. And so I'm struggling, Mark. And I'm, even while ranking this, I'm like, do I want to give this movie the benefit of the doubt that I'm watching this well outside of when it should be ranked? Yep, absolutely. When I listen back to this, me, myself, when you send me the edit before it gets posted, <laughs> whenever you hand this over to me and go, okay, I waited till the last second to do this thing, but here it is, it's ready to go. And I have to listen back to it because that's how we operate here. We're a very cobbled together um, team Yep. where we just, we get things out that we get them out the door eventually. <laughs> Am I going to get that back and hear my ranking? And be deeply offended at what I have done to myself. <laughs> That's where I'm at. And so, like... That's interesting, because watching this movie, it doesn't feel like Christmas, but I had a lot of the same emotional reactions I usually do, and I had to mm-hmm. really talk myself down from putting it at number one, because every time I watch this movie, I am just sort of emotionally broken at the end of this movie. And most of the rest of the Muppet movies, as much as I love them, can't sort of bring me to that emotional place and... Mm-hmm. That makes it hard to split out. So, yeah, I, I very much I found myself in the place where I was sort of talking myself in the other direction. It's fascinating. Interesting. I haven't done a very good job of hiding that this is my favorite Muppet movie going through this entire process. Absolutely. And so, like, I'm looking at your list and I'm seeing how you stack things up. And then I'm looking at my list. We also have to take this into consideration that this is like how we have ranked things immediately coming after them. And I'm looking back at my Muppet list, Mark, and mm-hmm. I'm I am just, I'm on defense about some of these choices retrospectively, even though I felt them in the moment. That's man, again, this is fascinating to me because as I was talking through it mm-hmm. and parking this movie at number two, I was feeling increasingly confident in like I have through the process of these podcasts come mm-hmm. to a more honest relationship with where I rank these Muppet movies than I've had in a long time because nostalgia goggles tend to blocker like the big three. I always, always mm-hmm. in my head have the big three. Uh, and in the course of this, I've allowed myself to remember how much I love Muppets from Space, to be very honest about how deeply the 2011 Muppet movie impacted me and how significant it is. Mm-hmm. So as I was reviewing my list just now while we were talking, I was thinking, boy, I feel really good about this. I think I finally sort of cracked the code on where 37-year-old Mark sits with these films. How interesting. <laughs> No, I'm looking. I'm more looking at my list and going. I put the Muppet movie and Muppets from Space one away from each other in the middle of this list. That, yeah, I did fair. that. I really did that, y'all. I'm looking at this and going like, of the two Muppet movies that at any time I am down to watch, like, uh, like that are the ones that I'm like. These are the ones that I want to watch. Like they were t- are the 2011 movie, and probably that first movie only because this one's so seasonal 
And so I'm looking back at this and going, man, the great Muppet caper. And we just posted that episode at the time of this recording. Um, or we will have uh, <laughs> yep. within the next like 48 hours or so of this recording. I'm looking at that and going, did I really love it that much? Like, did I? So I'm struggling here. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to also factor in recency bias. And I'm also trying to Absolutely. like factor in the fact that like, like how much of an effable quality is it that these movies mean these things to me at my core? <laughs> I'll, uh, well, I'll work through this internally as I'm giving you the list that I have thus far. And we'll see how, how that this goes. <laughs> at, n- at number seven for me is Treasure Island. I think it's easily the weakest Muppet movie. I really do think a lot of y'all have. <laughs> the one item secret... on your list you're comfortable with? Uh, 200%, but <laughs> it is the secret of the ooze of this franchise. It is not the thing everybody thinks it was in their youth. <laughs> Number six, Muppets Take Manhattan, which isn't a bad movie. No. Number five is Muppets Most Wanted, which edges out Manhattan with humor, I think. I think it's because the, the humor is so strong in, at points in that movie, and I really love the Sam Eagle stuff. Number four is Muppets from Space, which I'm sure is going to be uh stick in the craw of many listeners. <laughs> I ultimately landed it at number five, so we're not too far off there. Yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, number three for me is the Muppet movie still, which is good, but they had growth. Like they, there was some growth to be done. And I do think there are, even though that is so beloved by so many, I, I resonate more with other movies, even if it was a really strong first outing. (laughs) Number two is the Muppets. And at this, this is the point where like, I feel like I can rationalize my decision-making because (laughs) I think on a different day, Mark. I think on a different day, I I would have reversed my ordering for where the Great Muppet Caper and where the Muppets mm. sit. On a different day, the Muppets 2011 would have been a stronger entry for me. It is, aside from this movie, that movie and this movie are the ones that get genuine emotional reactions out of me. Sure. Like, they are the ones that, like, are really crank up the pathos. And so because I have that sitting at what is now my number three, I believe, is that correct? I have, yes. I, I, I failed to account for an extra numbering here. So <laughs> uh, to recap, Treasure Island is number eight. The Muppets Take Manhattan is number seven. Number six is Muppets Most Wanted. Number five is Muppets from Space. Number four is the Muppet movie. Number three is 2011's The Muppets. Number two is The Great Muppet Caper. Ooh, I I genuinely wasn't sure where you were going until you said it. Ooh, yeah, I me too. <laughs> uh, and now number one is The Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> it is the Muppet movie of our childhood, as you said at the start. Yes. Goodness. Mark, this was so hard. This was very hard. This was very, very hard. As I said, though, I am really glad we did this because I feel like I've been more honest with myself about my ranking. Like, in the first three, I only have one of the kind of gym trilogy, which is wild to me. This reminds me that I mentioned something previously about this, these, these series of movies that I wanted to bring up when we got to this point. Okay. Okay, so I pulled up my previous ranking from before we started this show, and it is, oh goodness, previous Dan decided the worst Muppet movie was still Treasure Island. 
Then Muppets from Space, which we have come to Ooh. learn is not the case. Yeah. Then Muppets Most Wanted, which is at the same right. spot in the list. <laughs> then Muppets Take Manhattan was my previous list. So really, so I've just two. I've just swapped those two, and then there's two more movies on this list. Or well, no, there's a few kind of finaglings that happened here. Then uh, I previously had the Muppets. After that, where here I have the Muppet movie. Then I had the Great Muppet Caper, rather than where the Muppets is now. Sure. Then the Muppet movie, rather than the Great Muppet Caper. Mm -hmm. So those swapped, or those last three kind of just moved around a bit. And I still had the Muppet Christmas Carol at my top. So your number one and number eight are the same. Yes. And then your middle six are the same. They're just shuffled around. Numbers two through four are a little shuffled. Numbers five Mm -hmm. through seven are a little shuffled. Correct. But the basic framework is pretty similar. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I really thought there was going to be more variants, honestly. (laughs) Like, I think the one that jumped up the furthest was Muppets from Space. The one that fell the most is probably the Muppet movie. Yep. I'm not sure why that was of interest to me, but I thought it would be fun to just kind of look back and see where I was. No, I like that. I'm glad you brought that up. So that's it for the Muppets, which makes me a little sad because the Muppets are my favorite. Not even my favorite movies, just kind of my favorite. Just your favorite, just in general. (laughs) But leaving, I guess, the world of puppetry behind, where are we going next? Well, we've decided to leave the world of bleak existential puppetry behind in Christmas Carol. And instead, next up... We're going to be watching the never-ending story. (laughs) The Third One Sucks is a Retrograde Orbit radio production. If you like the show, make sure to rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps us out. Follow us on Twitter at The Third One Sucks or email us at thethirdonesucks at gmail.com where we can chat about episodes and take your suggestions on what you would like us to cover in the future. That's the, the number three, rd1sucks at gmail.com. If you aren't already tired of our voices, you can check out our other projects, including Mindful Self-Indulgence, where Dan interviews folks about the media that has most impacted their lives, and Mount Olympus, where Mark and a panel of friends watches and reviews the Hercules and Xena television franchises, along with the rest of the Retrograde Orbit Radio family of podcasts at RetrogradeOrbitRadio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in the sequel. God, is he really just Bobo the Bear in real life? Is that what we're learning about Bobo <laughs> the Seems to be the, I mean, there's a lot of B alliteration there. That's true. <laughs> Bobo the Bill Beretta Bear. Bill, Bobo's Bill Bobo, 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 Bobo. <laughs> My favorite anime. <laughs>